Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. We got into this conversation and the young folks were saying, you know, the people who are supposed to be the ones caring for us, they think we're criminals, right? They treat us like we're broken, that we're bad kids. And we went around the table and literally all of the kids were saying that that was their experience. Yeah. And it was like, well, this is this is weird. I mean, I you know, I get you all are saying that. But what you're you're saying is that the people who were charged to care for you look at you in a way that suggests that you're not capable. I, it's, it was a hard thing for me to wrap my head around. And they're like, yeah, yeah, for sure. So we said, OK, well, let's validate it. Let's either prove you right or prove you wrong. Either way, we'll know. And then you can stop believing this if it's not the case. And so we went and we did this research project. And what we discovered was that, yeah, uh, our kids were right. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson. And I'm Akasa, a court-appointed special advocate volunteer for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know it's a mouthful. In the same way ACASA works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, really anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. Hi there, this is Jake Eberly, the producer of the Bonus Babies podcast, and today Jane speaks with Zaid Gale. Being raised by activist parents, he took those activism roots and started Peace for Kids. And now after 20 years, Peace for Kids has helped thousands of foster youth. And along the lines of what Jane and I have been talking about for some time now, they have the vision of community as family, so that in a foster care system that's otherwise broken but struggling to repair, Peace for Kids seeks to provide consistency, stability, and trust, the very things you should have in a family. And with everything happening in the world right now, we could all use a little extra dose of that. Enjoy the episode. Hey, I'm here with Zaid Gale. Hi, hi, Zaid. Hi, Janie. How are you today? <laughs> I'm good. Thanks for doing this because I know that um, you're kind of super busy. You're all over the place, right? Yeah, there's a lot going on, uh, both professionally and personally. But I think we're in a time where that's the case for everyone, right? Yeah, I guess that's true. That's really true. All right. Can you tell me a little bit about how you were raised, what your upbringing was like? Absolutely. I was privileged to have two parents who would be considered in today's era uh, social justice warriors. I had a uh, father who was involved with the Department of Children and Family Services as a division chief for what is called the command post. So he managed the calls that came into the hotline. And wow. Yeah. Wow. Talk about pressure. A lot of wow. pressure. You know, it was on call 24 hours a day when I was a kid. And then um, he was also a minister. So he did a lot of work in relationship to bringing the spiritual communities, the faith-based community into working with the Department of Children and Family Services. That was something that he he advocated for and still exists today. Uh, and then my mother is an educator. 
Um, she's also someone who had lived foster care experience. So she's informed a lot of what we do through my organization, Peace for Kids, just based on the life that she's led. Um, why I call them social justice warriors is that they also were involved in the Black Panther Party before I was born. And so their kind of involvement in believing that our responsibility on the planet is to be of service and to make the world a better place, uh, particularly for folks who are marginalized in terms of the construct of the kind of American ideals is something that um, I was kind of birthed into. And so I, I don't do this work without recognizing that they are the ones who have predominantly influenced me and encouraged me to step forward in this way. Let me ask you about the expression that you used, a lived foster care experience, because I, I learned that from you. I want to know what that means to you and how you arrived at that. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, some of the work that we've done has been around defining what foster care is. It's a kind of strange contextual idea. Some people think of orphans when they think about foster care, and uh, many of those perceptions are informed by some of the media that we watch. You know, people think about the little orphan Annie um, a lot of times when we talk about that. And we wanted to broaden the definition of what foster care meant because we recognize that there are a lot of people who've had a foster care experience or a live foster care experience. And so the way that we've defined that, it's just people who do not live with their biological parents through any specific means, right, when they're a child. And so that could mean that they are living with a grandmother or a grandfather or an aunt and an uncle, or that they are in a traditional foster care placement and they're living with a resource parent or a foster parent. Uh, it could mean that they're have been adopted and aren't living with their biological parents. And the reason why we talk about live foster care experiences are kind of defining scope is because we realize through some of the discoveries that they have around adverse childhood experiences that the loss of a parent is something that creates an adverse childhood experience. It's something that becomes a, a point of, of trauma and discovery in a person's life. We've all heard the stories of even children who've been adopted from birth and don't know their biological parents have this yearning and desire to meet their biological parents, right? To yes, kind of yes, consolidate yes. their awareness because, you know, look, the reality is, uh, and this is something I learned from my mom, we all struggle with identity through the kind of epigenetic experience that our parents have had. And we're beginning to learn now through science, right? That that epigenetics is not just something that happens theoretically, that there's a DNA imprint that's being passed on from our biological parents, you know? And so that's right. there's something to lean into as an idea, which is, hey, I need to know where I come from. I need to have some opportunity to kind of heal and discover. And if we don't have that, if we don't have that opportunity for closure and for healing and for discovering, then um, we, we get into these spaces where that trauma becomes a, a pain point and can be passed down in generations. So when we talk about live foster care experience, we're talking about anyone in the diaspora of the human condition that has been removed from their biological parents for whatever reason. Um, and we want to be a space where we solve for that moment in time so that folks who are moving through that experience know that there's a community of folks who are doing the same thing and that they can learn from each other. And that we can get away from shaming people because they don't come from the traditional family background, you know, and we've gotten into this whole kind of American idea about what a family structure is, you know, 
two-parent household and the white picket fence and the two dogs and whatever it is, right? And all that crap. All that crap. Yeah. And, you know, the reality <laughs> is it doesn't exist anymore, you know? Um, no. You have no, people who love each not. other who are same-sex couples. You have single parents. You have, you know, grandparents raising. So the, the, the experience of the family dynamic is so vast now. And so we want to kind of move our awareness to this space where like, yo, you can have the foster care experience and it doesn't mean it's like the end of your life, right? It just means you grew up in a non-traditional of part of the, the normative experience of being raised as a child. And so let's embrace that and let's learn from that. Let's discover what that means. And then let's unpack it so we can kind of heal as a community so we don't have this ongoing um, experience in which we feel foster care is, is a shameful experience to have. Yeah, and also just the term alone, foster kid, and all that conjures up all the all of the stigma, all of the shame, all of the the perceptions that are put on it that have nothing to do with the kid. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It comes from society, right? Yeah, it comes yeah. from society, it comes from the perceptions. And you know, we lean into what we call person-centric language, meaning that we, we don't define people by the experience that they're in at that particular moment, because that's not all that they are. So the other side. Yeah, of, explain that to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, it, it can, absolutely. So the, the other side of saying someone with a lived foster care experience is you don't define them by being in foster care. Right. So when you say uh, it's a foster kid, you're defining them based on that traumatic experience. And when you step out into the world and you have an identity that is solely structured around a traumatic point in your life, then it means that everyone in your experience is connected to that identity as well. And so we want to remove the conditions that people have been in in the moment any more than you would say someone who has experienced um, a sexual assault. You don't call them, yeah, you're, you're a, a sexually assaulted person. <laughs> No. <laughs> right. Um, <it's, laughs> right. Are your a divorced kid? Right. You're divorced. Are your parents divorced? For, your for kid for right. sure. Yeah. Right. So you, we 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 tend to operate from not calling people a name that hap that was part of an experience that happened to them, but we do that with youth in foster care. We call them foster kids. Um, yeah. As though yep. they're mm -hmm. defined by a moment that they literally did not control. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, that they really didn't control, that, right? They have no say in it whatsoever. No say in it whatsoever. Um, you know, and and of course we're generalizing here. So for anybody who's listening who had a live foster care experience said, Hey, I, I chose to leave my house because I realized it wasn't right for me. Okay, we're we're of course generalizing here. But in most cases, yes. youth in foster care are removed from their home not because of something that they've done, any wrong or any condition that they've created. And so uh, we want to move away from identifying young people with that condition for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And I, I know it's, it's brought a whole new awareness to me. I've been really trying to be more careful about the terms I use. Um, of course, that's only a small part of it, the terms, right? It's, uh, it's, there's, a, there's a whole learning process and one of the reasons why I wanted you as a guest so much on this show is not only because of the work that you do, but because of the work that you're continuing to do to understand the foster care experience, the lived foster care experience, and how how you can influence how other people see it, respond to it, treat it, manage it, 
um, and and also in the end, I imagine make policy as well, right? Absolutely, and you know it all goes back to my mother because when I started doing this work almost twenty five years ago now, <laughs> um, I had to I had to reconcile my own biases that I had against uh, young folks who are in foster care because here I was I was this you know twenty three year old kid who uh, really believed in uh, social justice as a a right for for all people and i found myself walking into a community of children who had experienced foster care and conditioning myself to think that they needed me to help them and to serve them that i was there to fix the problem that i could save them from the conditions that they were in right that you would be the hero to that them, i was the right? hero in their story right Right, because they were the victims and you were the hero. That's it. I had perspective, I had knowledge, I had I had life, and there's you know, lots of stories along the way in which I got checked. Um and I'm <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and I'm very grateful for all of that. And and what I will uh you know acknowledge is that that being checked by those young folks and, and in very loving and thoughtful ways, right? And some of it wasn't intentional, some of it was in my ability to process information later, I begin to discover these young folks have assets. Um, and we really moved into this idea of an asset framing construct or strength-based perspective, which was really about looking at young people as not being broken, but essentially being whole. And that our approach had to be more anthropological in its design. We just needed to show up and we had to discover and learn together. We had to build a relationship. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of times people come into communities believing they have the answer. And that's where I was in the early days. And I tried to apply some of the solutions that I thought would work and failed miserably. And so it's in the 25 years, the one thing that I repeatedly know is that I don't know anything. And that is that not knowing where a lot of the joy and the solutions come from because we discover things together. And we've had many iterations of young folks who step into leadership at Peace for Kids who teach me something new. Um, and so now I'm just inspired by the possibility of what will emerge, not because of what I'm going to be doing, but because of what I will discover as a result of doing it together. Um, one of the things that my dad always taught me, it's, it's a lesson I have to remind myself, is that you know, I'm a human being, not a human doing. And so the more I try to do things, the more I try to solve for things, the less beingness I get the opportunity to experience. And so I want to be in the practice of just being present with our young folks so that I can learn and discover what is necessary for my own life and that hopefully I can reciprocate that experience for them so that they get the opportunity to be with themselves and to discover what is right for their lives. Because we all need something different, right? Um Right. So tell me how you started Peace for Kids, because uh, this is an interesting story and also a very personal one. Yeah. Um, I had a, a series of different things that happened in my life that led me towards Peace for Kids. Um, you know, in the beginning, Peace for Kids was just an extension of uh, a project I was doing for my church, a church called Agape. And it was started to commemorate and honor the lives of Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King. So there's 64 days in between their memorials. And so at the church, 
I was responsible for creating these youth-inspired projects. And so we decided as a group of uh, young folks, young adults and teens, that we wanted to do a peace garden because we had someone who was in our spiritual community who had uh, had his cousin who had been murdered on the streets of Watts. So we decided to go out there and uh, create a peace garden. Um, and we went to different places. We even went to the Watts Towers to try to install a garden. We weren't getting much success. And then we ended up presenting at the school called 99th Street Elementary School. We had an auditorium meeting with the kids and we explained what we wanted to do, didn't think anything of it. And then a week later, we got this package of envelopes that were 99 reasons why 99th Street School needed a peace garden. And they were 99 different accounts of how violence had impacted their lives. Wow. Wow. That came from the school? It came from the, it came from the, the, the school and the kids themselves. Yeah. Um, right. And unsolicited. Just Unsolicited. Wow. Uh, and really powerful. So we decided, hey, this is, this is where we're going to go. Um, and so we went in and we started to, to build this garden. And it was in the midst of kind of building this garden because the the school gave us a plot of land in the back that was overgrown by overgrown by weeds that were probably four to five feet tall. And because we're working with kids, we're not using any chemicals. So uh, most of our time was just spent pulling weeds, watering, letting the weeds come back up, pulling weeds. So the first three months, <laughs> the kids were not very excited about this, you can imagine. That's like life, <laughs> That's right? It. That's it. But, you know, literally for the first three months, we're just pulling weeds. And as a result, we spent a lot of time talking to the kids. And what we found was that so many of the kids who were coming and this program was happening on Saturday were kids who were in foster care. And, oh. you know, I thought like, wow, what a unique kind of opportunity for me to build a peace garden for kids who are in foster care because of my mother's experience and my father's experience. Right. It's, it's a unique position here for me. Um, and so so we did that and, and it worked uh, what I thought pretty well, but I, but I reached a point where it was just supposed to be a project. Um, it was not something that it was supposed to be my, my life's work. At least I didn't think it was supposed to be. And I reached a point where I realized I couldn't, I couldn't do what I was doing there at Peace for Kids part-time because I was also working in a film ministry. That's how I was making my, my living. And I just didn't have the time, energy, or resources to commit to doing Peace for Kids full time because I, you know, I was a young man. I need to make a living and all those things. And so I was going to walk away. And uh, at that moment when I was going to walk away, um, I had an unfortunate experience. Um, this uh, young man who was my my closest and best friend, I called him my brother. His name was Javon, and uh, Javon ended up uh, committing suicide. And uh, I was actually on set uh, the day before he, he he passed and he called me and, um, you know, it was right after 9-11 had happened. And so I had been out of town because I had just got married on the 1st of September of, of 2001. And I was on my honeymoon and uh, we were actually out of the country during the time of 9-11 and I really struggled to get back. I spent more money than I had in my budget. You know, we were a young couple. And so I had budgeted to, to the dollar about how much money I had to spend. But I expended all my resources uh, trying to get back. And so I immediately went to work. And Javon called me, um, you know, the, the night before he passed and said, hey, I, I just need to talk to you. We didn't get together for your birthday. And it's something that you know, we, we traditionally do we just have that check in and I, and I really need to, to, to chat. 
And I said, oh, okay, okay, uh, you know, like um, I'm on set right now, but I'll call you when I'm done and then we can talk then. And he uh, said, yes, please, but just give me a call. Well, I wrapped really late that night and I had to get up early the next morning um, to go back to set. So I didn't call. And so the next call I got was at four o'clock the next morning um, from his sister telling me that he had uh, jumped from a building next to his house. And it was a really challenging moment for me because I had 13 years before that, I had a, had an experience in what I felt like I wanted to, to take my life. And my brother Javon was there to encourage me to see it differently. And I felt like I failed him. You know, I felt like he called and he asked me to be present with him. And I was so caught up in my own personal crisis of needing to take care of what I thought was the most important, you know, getting the money, paying down my bills, that I didn't make myself available to my brother. And I had to be the one to go with his wife and tell his six-year-old son that his dad was ever coming home. And in that moment, it made me think about all the kids at Peace for Kids, um, that that was a reality that many of them were facing, that many of them would not get the opportunity to see their parents, to have the relationship that they hope to have, and how parallel this experience was with my nephew. Um, and in that moment, I decided that to honor the life of my brother, Javon, that I would always be fully present for any child that needed that support. And so that, in truth, is where Peace for Kids started. Peace for Kids started the moment that I lost my brother and recognized that my life's work was really in elevating and honoring the voices of kids who do not get the choice to be with the biological parents that have brought them onto the planet. So do you ever, do you ever feel like it's overwhelming? All the time. <laughs> All the time. Yeah, I bet. I bet it's a it's a it's a really big job. Uh, I mean, even if you're only trying to do it, never mind if you're actually doing it. Yeah, look, the 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 work can feel overwhelming, and which is why it's so important to have some level of personal balance to recognize how to regulate myself, to recognize when I need to take a, a break and engage in some self care because it is easy to get consumed by the situation and the circumstances. And part of what I've learned and discovered in working with young folks is the best thing we can do for each other is model how we take care of ourselves. Because in the journey of life, there is always something that is around the corner. I joke with our kids in our leadership training, it's like, ah, you know what? I hate scary movies, I hate horror films. They're always like, why? Why do you hate horror films? And I tell them, like, you know, horror films are too much like real life. That thing that you're always trying to run away from <laughs> is the thing that you always run into, right? Mm -hmm, That's just kind of the mm -hmm. nature of the universe. The way that you try to step away from the things that you're afraid of, you're always going to run into it. And so you have to prepare yourself for those moments of reckoning that are, that are naturally going to come because the way that we are with our consciousness and the way that we walk into things, we are going to run into the things that we fear. So we have to be prepared for those moments. And our preparation requires us 
to learn to take care of ourselves. And so when I'm feeling overwhelmed, I have specific things that I do. Some of these things are, um, you know, I've learned through clinical practice with one of our partners, Dr. Nikki Elliott. So we've learned a lot about the regulation of our nervous system and the vagus nerve um, and breath work uh, techniques that can help to regulate your parasympathetic and your sympathetic nervous system to put yourself in balance uh, when you're in those moments yes. of stress. So those are all yes. things that I've had to learn to practice and, and, and endure because uh, otherwise I can imagine that my life too would be cut short. And, you know, I recognize that historically my father, who I mentioned earlier, passed away at 64 uh, years old. Young. 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 Yeah. Uh, I know this is not necessarily so young to some of the young folks listening to this, but that's a young man. Uh, and my grandfather, that's a young yeah, man. my grandfather mm -hmm. passed away at 67. And so both of them really took on specific roles in the world that was about advocacy and social justice. And, you know, my father had, you know, spiritual practice and techniques that he would use. But again, you know, you take on all that stress. And if you're not really mindful about it, those things can uh, can take you under. And so I, my, I want to be here as long as possible to continue to, to do the work. Um, because I love it. I think it, it as challenging as it is, it is also life affirming. So I want my life to be an example for the young folks that we work with, that you can engage in, in movements of change and still live a fruitful and healthy life. I want to move us away from the idea that to be in service to the planet and to the world means that uh, your life will be cut short, it means that you can't be, lead a life that is... Um, inspiring and influential and also full of, of joy and prosperity uh, and love. Um, I think we have created a narrative in which being of service in this way means that you uh, are going to be bound by good relationships and uh, bound by change, but that you can't live a fruitful life in all the other ways. And so um, I'm hoping that I can change that perspective, uh, but it requires a real strong commitment to being present with whatever is moving through me, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Right, so you have uh, a wife and three little kids, and I'm sure that's that's uh, not only very rewarding, but really demanding too. It is, yeah, which is why I said uh, early on that this is both a, a challenge professionally and personally at this particular time. Um, you know, we are coming out of a pandemic, and so it's about managing the schedule with the kids that they've gone back to school. It's about managing the work schedule. It's about making time to be with my wife and for us to enjoy our time together. Uh, and look, we also live with my mom. You know, when my dad passed, we decided to stay uh, in the house with my mom so she was not alone. And so mm -hmm. I also had to make time to be present with my mother. Um and, and to share in, in the love that we have co-created together. Right. And your, your kids, they're, uh, especially the two older boys, they understand what, what you're doing, right? How do they feel about your work and about the, also the fact that it takes you away from them? It's a great question. It's one of those things that I recognize from, for, for many of the times that they, uh, have said that they don't always understand why dad is doing this work and why he can't be home on Saturday to, to be with them on days when they're available. 
So what we've done is we've made time where Sunday is our sacred day. It's family day. Uh, so we hang out together. We do things as a family. Sometimes those things are chores and they're not that excited about it. But, you know, it's it's tech free Sunday on Sunday. So there's no TV, no phones. No, no iPad, yeah, no, no, no games. None nothing. of that. Wow. We, we are with each other. And so that's the commitment that we've had to make to make sure that the recognition that they have is that I am available for them. And I bring them to events. You know, I'm sure you had the opportunity to see them at some of the events. I want them to physically yes. see and understand because the other part of it for me is I want to continue the legacy that my parents left for me. I want them to see the work that we're doing and not feel disconnected to it. And I recognize that they have a lot of privileges that uh, are afforded them because of the work that I did in the film industry and because of the work that I do now. But I want them to know that they come by these privileges honestly and that there are other young folks who are having an experience in which they don't get to be with their their two parents. And I want them to recognize that that is a privilege and that's something that they should uh, be proud of, that they should celebrate, but also recognize that they can be in the midst of other children who are having a different experience. And to realize that they should have compassion for any child who is moving through something different and to understand that behaviors that those children may exhibit um, are not necessarily ones that they may be familiar with, but that those behaviors are justified based on the experiences that they're moving through. And for them to understand that there is a language that everyone speaks based on the conditions that they're moving through. And if you're really present, you'll be able to understand that language and communicate with them in a way that's reasonable and compassionate um, that allows them to feel safe in your presence. You know, when I was first at Peace for Kids, I uh, it was one of the first weekends. I might have mentioned this to you. I was I, I was really perplexed because kids would come and they would immediately start searching for uh, their brother or their sister, and they'd say, you know, have you seen Susie or, uh, you know, have you seen Micah? And I I I remember thinking, well, why don't they know <laughs> where their brothers and sisters are? And then, of course, I realized it's because they weren't even with their right. brothers and sisters in right. in foster care, that often the families are separated. And the only time that those kids see each other, siblings, is yeah. at Peace for Kids. Yeah, absolutely. And that was something that we, we decided we wanted to do early on. Um, the woman who co-founded Peace for Kids with me, her name was Marnie Otway, and she was a social worker. And it was one of the things that she really wanted us to lean into, because a lot of times when there are family visits, family visits would happen in like social workers' offices, right? Very clinical settings. Or, you know, they'd have family visits at the local McDonald's, right? So there were these, right. At the McDonald's, <laughs> you know? yep. It's a, yeah. So they yep. would happen the in these very strange right. places where <laughs> kids could not really be kids and be themselves and connect. Yeah, they can play. They can't be themselves. They can't run around. They they can't fight. They can't they can't pull each other's all hair. That, all that, right? right. <laughs> all so that so stuff, Marnie right. really wanted to make sure that's something that we did. So uh, her her kind of call to action was: we have to make it a uh, a safe, familial place, so that kids get a sense of that when they walk in and they see their sibling that they can just be siblings, that they can play, that they can engage, that they can be silly. To your point, they can fight 
and know that fights are going to be okay. That's not going to get them in trouble because, you know, we all have moments with our siblings, but then work it out. Right. Um, and, and move forward and know that that relationship is going to be there That's and, and have uh, an opportunity for them to be able to return to that week to week. So that became a really important aspect of what we do. Yeah. You know, and there was one other time that this is also early on. Um, I was playing what I thought was a fantastic game um, in which I was throwing myself against the gym wall, you know, the padded wall. Uh, and then I would fall and I would throw myself against the wall and fall and then do it again over and over. And I was with one of the kids and finally she just shrieked at me and she grabbed me. She said, stop that, stop that. And in that moment, I realized that actually she probably had a very violent experience in her own life. And I was just recreating it as a game. And it, it wasn't a game for her. It wasn't a game for her at all. And I, anyway, I was, and I met, I remember I was, I, I, I was ashamed after that. I thought, why, why didn't I realize that? Why didn't I know that? Why wouldn't I have known that? I mean, I learned it then. Right. But, um, and I was certainly a lot more careful in the future. Yeah. It's such an interesting thing that, you know, our perceptions and our lack of understanding, um, you know, can create this, this sense of shame. And I talked earlier about how, you know, I made tons of mistakes in, in the beginning years. Um, and we talk a lot about the, the rupture and repair experience. And what I mean by that is you make a mistake and, you know, it creates a rift between you and a young person. It upsets them and brings anxiety uh, in the moment and it ruptures you. Yeah, she didn't talk to me. She didn't yeah. talk to me for two years, by the way. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, no, but okay, there's anyway, space continue. for repair, right? There's space for you to kind of come back and, and say, like, look, I, I messed up. I'm sorry. I, you know, I wasn't being present. Um, and I was doing something that I thought was was funny, or I was doing something that I thought was necessary to correct the behavior. And whatever our explanation is, we have the opportunity to create repair. That's been one of the most powerful things about this experience for me. Um, one of my favorite stories is one I tell all the time is the one about strawberries. And uh, there was this caregiver who used to love to show up early. And uh, when I was going to 99th Street School, we would have the garden and I would show up early so I could prepare for the day. I was the only one with the keys. So I want to make sure I got there early to set up for when the kids got there. And this caregiver was notoriously showing up early to try to drop her kids off so she could leave. She happened to come on this day and she said, hey, I've got to go. There's funeral services. I can't drop off all the kids. I only want to drop off one because I don't want her to go to these funeral services. Um, so I really need your help. I know I'm not supposed to drop off early, but I really need your help. So I was like, okay, you know, this is, there's, there's something very specific going on here. She can come. So the six-year-old girl gets out of the car and she comes in and you know, I tell her, uh, you know, just just wait here for a second. Let me make sure things are safe for you. Um, I put all the, the tools away that I think could hurt her. And then I walk her around the garden so we can check it out. And I happen to come across this strawberry. It's like, oh, look at this. It's the first strawberry of the season. And I pluck the strawberry for her and I give it to her and I say, hey, why don't you eat this strawberry? You're the only one who's going to get a chance to, to get this strawberry. So enjoy it. And then walk around and see if there's any other strawberries that you can share with your friends when they get here. And I left and I went to go finish preparing, came back maybe like five minutes later. And I see that the strawberry had just like had a bite out of it. And it had been like 
thrown into the dirt. And I was like, what? You know, I, I got all upset. And I'm like, what are you doing? Why would you take this strawberry and throw it in the dirt? You know, I gave that to you and it was a very specific thing. And why would you treat food like that? And, you know, she got big eyed and tears, tears welled up in her eyes and she started to cry. And, and she said, well, you told me to walk around to see if there were more strawberries, but there weren't any. So I was planting them. So when the other kids got here, they can have some too. Um, Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, her compassion broke my heart, you know, and here I was being so firm and strong and she was really being thoughtful. And we have these moments where we're not uh, giving permission for the kids to express their power and their voice in a way that's meaningful to them. We get into adultifying the situation and doing what we think is right. Okay, so this leads me to the haves. So talk to me about that. The haves. I'm still learning. Yeah, I'm still learning the haves. You know, I'm still, pra- I practice the haves in my regular life. The haves. All right, try The haves. To. Yeah, the haves. They're a great, great tool to, to use, and they are great for any relationship. Um, so, you know, uh, there are lots of different stories. The, the strawberry story is, like I said, one of them that, that, that uh, was a teaching moment for me. But what happened over, you know, about 20 years of doing this work was we realized there's a very specific tool that we're using to engage with young folks in a meaningful way. And we needed to understand how to unpack it and create this communication tool that could be used by everyone. Because people will come and say, oh, you're so great with the kids. How do you do that? And I'd be like, I don't I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. It just became part of how I learned over the years to interpret language and interact with our young folks. And so we have a, a couple of staff members. And these staff members would come to me and say, well, let's talk a little bit about what it is that we want to, to, to do. Like, what is it that you're doing? And they would walk me through cases step by step. And so what resulted was this definition of a tool, a communication and connection tool that we call the HAVES. And the HAVES is an acronym. It stands for hear, acknowledge, validate, and shift. Um, And so there are four very specific points that you engage in when you're uh, working with a young person. Now, and it's not always about when a young person is a point of stress or anxiety. It could be when a young person is experiencing joy or experiencing any big emotion. And it's something that you can use with your partner. I use it all the time with my wife. And she'll say, don't you have me? Don't you do that? (laughs) (laughs) So here's a note to everyone listening. You know, if your partner knows, they will call you out when they don't want to be has. Sometimes folks just want to fight with you and that's okay. Uh, (laughs) That's That's okay okay too. too, right. Okay, so give me an example. So like, say for instance, I'm a little kid. And I'm like freaking out because uh, somebody, uh, you know, somebody punched mm. me and I, I'm and I'm yeah. freaking out. So the first thing you do in here is you recognize your your own uh, triggers and emotions. Right. So we all have biases and things that have happened to us in our life that may force us into a moment where we're not going to be able to be fully present with that kid because it's triggered something in us. So in this situation. Maybe for me, because I used to have a, a an, an older brother who would hit me. Like it brings up feelings of like, ah, that's not right. You know, I, here's an opportunity. Yeah. yeah, me too. He used to punch me in the arm over and over that's, and over and over right. again. It was for fun sure, for right. him. So it brings right. up those yeah. kind of reflections for you in this moment. 
which is not necessarily the ideal space to be when you want to engage with a child in their discovery or how they're feeling in the moment. So you have to check your own biases and, and there's a specific way that we teach people to do that. You know, there's some breath work things that you need to do, you know, go back and see yourself in, in that particular moment and then kind of allow yourself to move through it and to move forward so that you can be fully present with the child. And then you really hear what the child is saying. And you do that by observing and saying what you've seen or what you've heard, right? Like, I, I hear that you're upset that someone punched you, right? And so that's the first step. Uh, and then you get into acknowledging, right? You acknowledge that whatever that child is is feeling, because they'll have a response to that. And they might say like, yeah, I hate it. Johnny's always punching me. And he does it every time we play basketball and it's upsetting. And say, yeah, I, I, I get that. I know that it's really upsetting for someone to get into your physical space and to, to, to hurt you when it's not something that you asked for. I totally get that. So you're acknowledging that what that child is experiencing in that moment is very real. Um, right. So, and, and the reason why that's important is because you're validating it. You're not, you're not saying it doesn't matter. He didn't hurt you anyway. You know, that, get over it. it. Yeah. And, right? and the validation is the yeah. next step. So you acknowledge that what happened for that child is real. And then the V is you validate All right. whatever they're feeling. Right. So as a result of this happening, what's going on in your body? Where do you feel? I, I feel like I want to punch him. I feel like I want to do this. I feel sad. I feel this. It's like, yes. Right. I can understand. So you're, you're, you're validating with empathy and compassion. Um, so you can move to what we call compassionate right action, which is what is the next step to take? And sometimes the shift is something that can happen in the moment. And the shift is also something that may not happen. And so we also have to be comfortable with just an HAV, a hear, acknowledge, validate, because sometimes the child isn't ready to shift. And what we often do as adults is we want to fix it for them, right? So we'll say, okay, we're going to go over there. We're going to get Johnny and I'm going to make Johnny apologize. Uh, okay. Maybe, but Johnny's not really sorry. He only did it because you made him. And the kid doesn't feel like he got a genuine apology. Um, so he still has energy. So in the shift part is where you get to ask questions. Okay. What would you, what would you like to see happen here? Well, I want Johnny to apologize. Okay. And do you think that Johnny is ready to apologize? I don't know, right? So you begin to ask questions out of real curiosity about how the child wants to move forward. And what often happens is, is, is two things in the shift. The first thing is that the child really believes that you're interested in what's going on, um, that you care about them and that they're safe to have this conversation with you. And the second thing is that the child begins to recognize that they're capable, that they can solve their own problems. And why this is so essential for young people in foster care is that frequently people are solving problems for them, right? Something ha all, all the, the time, time, right? Something yep. happened in the house. They got removed. They get to in a new placement. That new caregiver is making decisions for them, may decide where they're going to school or what they're going to eat. Uh, they're placed in a room with kids maybe that they don't know or in a house with kids that they don't know. So there's all these changes that happen. Um, you have a social worker who makes decisions for you. When you go to court, you have a lawyer that makes decisions for you. Maybe you have a CASA who's an advocate who listens to you. That's a little bit better, right? <laughs> but you have all the hopefully, hopefully, hopefully right? Yeah. But you have all yeah. these people that yeah. are making decisions for you. So you lose this kind of sense of I have critical thinking skills and I, I'm capable of making decisions in my own life. So that's the other point of this, which we recognize as a real powerful tool, is you give young people agency. You give them voice and you give them power. Yeah. Right, right, right. You're giving them agency and you're giving them also um, the tools to continue to develop it as That's well. Right. That's right. right. Because everyone in the community is using this tool. 
So what's great about it is that child then begins to understand whether you we've explained the half to them or not. Like, oh, there's a there's a method to the madness here. You know, I get I have this big feeling, and then people engage with me in a certain way, and I can solve it. This is great. And the hope is that when they have a problem outside of the community, that they'll go back to like, okay, what am I feeling right now? What's going on? Okay, I'm, it's okay that I feel this way. That's fine. All right, how do I how do I move to solve this? What can I do in this moment to make myself feel better? Or do I need to stay here? Do I want to stay in this emotion and, and have this experience? Because that's okay too. All right, so if you don't mind talking a little bit more about the other things that you have also developed, for instance, the heart um, approach. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, the haves is a communication tool um, and it's a connection tool. And the other thing about it is you have to also look at um, the heart, which is a way to, we say, have yourself. Right. And, and what I mean by that, it goes back to what I was saying earlier in terms of regulating yourself. There's a, a bi-directional experience whenever we come in contact with each other. And, and science has proven that in many ways, the interactions that we are having with other human beings is influenced by our own nervous systems. And so when we step in spaces, we have to learn to regulate ourselves if we want to have the intended outcome. And the example I always give when I go out to do trainings is like, I want you to imagine that there's a fire in this room. All of a sudden, somebody sees it. They start freaking out because the fire is behind them. Everybody else jumps up and they're screaming and they're running around. And there's always a one person in the space that says, hey, everyone calm down. The exit is over here. We're going to move in an orderly fashion so that everyone can get out safely. And the person who has command in that moment tends to have the ability to lower the energy in the space so that people can respond. If there's not that person, then there's crazy making. People are losing their minds and all kinds of things are happening. And so that's what we want to be as uh, using the heart tool. We want to be that person that can regulate the environment, who can lower the stress, by first doing it within ourselves. So part of what the heart tool is, the heart tool is really about hearing what's going on. It's doing it with empathy and compassion. It's, it's developing a, a, a rationale and a reason for why we are, are moving through this. And it's checking all of those biases, checking all of those energies and giving ourselves tools to kind of meditate, to uh, visualize, to see ourselves in situations that we know cause us stress. And then to have resolution when we move through that, right? So the next time that you come up against a moment, and when you talked about this experience with this child that you had, right, you could go back and you can visualize that in your, your head and say, okay, how could I have shown up differently, right? How could I be in more regulated force in that moment so that I'm not triggering or causing additional harm in that space? So you're constantly in the space of self-reflection, and that's what heart is about. It's about tuning into the heart vibration, tuning into that nervous system, regulating yourself in a way so that when you step into spaces where you know there's going to be high energy and kids and all these things going on, where you can get like swept up in the moment and be doing all kinds of things, banging yourself off the wall or, you know, with me, I'm, you know, screaming and dancing. Like I can do all those things. I'm having a good time. But I also have to have the the awareness of like, okay, I'm not in a space of of being, I'm not in a space of self-control and self-awareness. I'm allowing myself to get swept up and it's not feeling good right now. And that's what we also speak to in terms of interoception. You know, that interoception is, is awareness of the body that we frequently get out of, right? We frequently are not paying attention to what's going on in our body because of all the other distractions that are happening. 
So it is a practice, uh, and and it's it's the practice of of self regulation and self management. And we we've, we've written about this work in uh, a, a book. It's a it's a handbook that's about innovative practices that we think are really valuable for uh, early childhood educators and for young children. Right. I will put that in the show notes, actually. So just so the the the, the readers will be able to to uh, or the listeners will be able to. Refer yeah. To yeah. It. Thank you for that. Um, and that that work was also informed by um, some research that we had done because. No. And, and again, I, I know this is a strange thing because so much of what we created has come directly from what we have discovered with our young folks. Um, and so we did something called uh, Changing the Narrative, and it was a youth-led initiative. And it was all of... I love it. 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 Okay. <laughs> uh, but our youth were... Uh, you know, they were they were saying some things that really caught us off guard, you know, and, and one thing that they said, and we would have these, we have these what's called family dinners, and you've been to been to those, Jane. It's really, it's a nice time. It's very casual. You can imagine a large Sunday family dinner with all your folks. That's all it is. We get together, we break bread, and it's not really an agenda. We're just hanging. And at one dinner, um, we got into this conversation, and the young folks were saying, you know, the people who are supposed to be the ones caring for us, they think we're criminals, right? They treat us like we're broken, that we're bad kids. And we went around the table and literally all of the kids were saying that that was their experience. Yeah. And it was like, well, this is, this is weird. I mean, I, you know, I get you all are saying that, but what you're, you're saying is that the people who are charged to care for you, look at you in a way that suggests that you're not capable. I, it's, it was a hard thing for me to wrap my head around. And they're like, yeah, 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 for sure. So we said, okay, well, let's validate it. Let's either prove you right or prove you wrong. Either way, we'll know. And then you can stop believing this if it's not the case. And so we went and we did this research project. And what we discovered was that, yeah, uh, our kids were right. There are these biases that exist. And it doesn't matter if you're a social worker. It doesn't matter if you're a caregiver. It doesn't even matter if you're someone with lived foster care experience. That the media that we consume has such a strong suggestion about who youth in foster care are that it's hard for us to evade those biases. Because again, implicit biases, they're rooted in our, our beingness and who we are as human beings. We, we find ways to navigate the world around us. So we don't, it's, it's not a conscious thing that we're doing. So we discovered that, yeah, uh, many people look at our youth in, in four predominant ways. And it's influenced by the media as victims, as survivors, as criminals or drug addicts. And we did this, the initial survey in, in Los Angeles. And then once we brought it back to them, we began to have the question, like, is, that, is it that way everywhere? Like, does this exist or is it just like an L.A. thing? So we did a national survey and the results were exactly the same. Dominant ways that people see the youth in foster care based on media portrayals are victim, survivor, criminal, drug addict. And the other thing that we discovered was in that second survey, the youth decided, well, we don't think, we think it's only about the way people perceive youth in foster care, but they don't think the same way about kids who are adopted. Not like, get out of here. That's not, it's not possible because if you're adopted, most adoptions come from foster care. It's like the same population. Adoptive kids have lost their parents too. Like, I, I don't get it. Why would they think differently? And they're like, no, no, no. I have friends who've been adopted and you know, they have a very different life than, than we have. People look at them differently. I was like, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. And they were right. Wow, um, really? You know, mm. and what we found was that not only did 
they look at adoptive view from a more positive framework. The, the only thing that was shared was, I think, survivor was one of the identities that was shared between um, youth and foster care and adoptive youth. But all the other ones, I think one was uh, the, the top four for them were like a survivor, a loving child or parent, a role model. So they had these very positive frameworks uh, and youth and foster care had negative. And then when we looked at what was the expectation for life outcomes, um, the expectation for life outcomes were also very different. The adoptive youth had things like financial independence and a, a loving marriage or you know, a successful career, uh, while the youth in foster care had incarceration, lack of healthy relationships, right? So the, the outcomes that they expected for both these populations, which again are very parallel, were starkly different. And it was incredible to me. And so we're, we're in the midst of continuing to, to share that research and our findings with folks. But the tools that we've developed, the haves and hearts interconnection, are ways for us to say, we have to really check our biases at the door. If we're really going to be in service to this population of young folks, if we're really going to do it, we have to do our own inner work so that we can show up. And that's literally what the kids have taught me, right? They've taught me. If I show up with my, you know, I'm not going to say the word, but I show up with my my stuff, then I can't fully be present. And if I can't fully be present, then how can I really be of service to a young person who is looking for that guidance? But how can you not have your stuff? Because it's still part of you. So what what you're implying is, I mean, it sounds so Eastern. It's like, it's almost as if you 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 have, you, you have to be so aware, so mindful that it's almost inhuman, but that's that's not it either. Because I see you; you're a human yeah, being. Yeah, no, and it, and it is. It is not about being so um, spiritually evasive that you are not connecting with others. What it is about is to recognize why you've shown up, and to get get all of those kind of agendas out of the way so that you can be fully uh, present and evolved. And you know, as we talked about in in both of our individual experiences and the stories that we shared. My concern with that young lady and that strawberry came from my own history of growing up in a black household where you don't waste food. You never waste food, right? And so I had a reaction to this young woman in a beautiful moment, right? That was about my agenda and my idea and myself, right? If I had been present and instead of accusing her of something, had asked her and said, Hey, I see you through the strawberry in the ground. Why'd you do that? Right? Out of just natural curiosity, then she would have told me, oh, there were no strawberries here. So I was planting them so when the other kids got here, they could have some. You see the difference in the tone of the experience. In one, I came with my agenda, my identity, my thoughts about the way the world is supposed to be. And I enforced that, which caused further harm, you know? In your experience, throwing yourself up against the wall, I think this is hysterical. This is funny, right? It's entertained so many kids in <laughs> in the past, you know, doing pratfalls. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, that's, that's my shtick. I, I I I was going to entertain her. She was going to laugh. Physical comedy, it. right? I mean, the physical comedy, right? Yeah, she was she, she was having no parts of it, and and I didn't know enough at the time to to actually address it yeah. with her, and uh, you know, to say. I don't even think I was, I didn't have the chance to say, I'm sorry that I upset you. I was doing my own thing without really paying attention to how it was actually affecting yeah. you. Yeah. And, you know, the um, opportunity could have been to check in with 
whatever kids were there and, and to say like, hey, what do you guys want to do? What are you feeling like doing at this moment? Is, is there something we can do? Because mm-hmm. I really, I'm, I'm looking forward to playing with you guys. I want to have a good time. And I'm silly. So I'd like to do something silly. You know, what are your ideas? Right. And again, it gives young people agency, it gives them voice and choice and power in that moment. Uh, because how frequently are our kids told what's going to happen to them in the moment versus being asked, how would you like to move forward? Um, and so that's all I mean by using these tools, right? And using our awareness of our own biases as a reflection point for us to be in the business of checking ourselves, not to say that those moments aren't there, you know, but to recognize when you're triggered in a moment, is this trigger about me and my experience or is this trigger about something that this young person is, is moving through? And when we have practice doing that, then we can begin to engage in real heart-centered connection with any human being, right? Because we begin to understand the interactions and the languages of people who might be marginalized, who not be may not be represented. Um, and that's something that we have to practice because we are always the heroes in our own stories, you know? And we need practice in being the supporting cast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as, as I'm hearing you speak about this, I can't help but think, and this is going to sound obnoxious, but aren't you, aren't you sick of doing it? That's a, a great question. And the answer is... I mean, you know, right? Don't, don't you want to be an asshole sometimes? <laughs> And just get shitty, or whatever. I, don't, I, don't know. I, I, I really appreciate that question. And the answer is, I don't even think about it. Um, you know, it be, it's something wow. that has become so ingrained in what I do that I love it because it leads to connections with people that I would never have connections with. So. Practicing these tools means that I can connect with folks that are people that I would never, ever connect with. And this includes folks, my, my political affiliation is um, I'm very liberal. Um, I'm democratic. I found myself in conversations with Trump supporters and catching myself like I'm understanding what this person is saying. What's wrong with me? Right. <laughs> um but enjoying the connection with that person, right? And then having, asking them real questions. Um, and, and then I found as I've done some other research, there was this brother who was going around talking to people who were involved in white supremacist organizations and just sitting down having conversations with them um, and building relationships. Right, are, right. Are you talking about yes. Daryl Davis? Yeah. Yeah, he's he is, amazing. Right? I mean, and a very similar yeah. approach, right? And you're like, that's... This Absolutely. is what happens. This is what happens when you open yourself up to the possibility and you move away from your own triggers. You can embrace people and people can feel love and they can feel safe and they can be transparent and you can build relationships with folks who you should not be in connection with. And to me, that is really the work of humanity. To me, that is the spirit of peace evolving on the planet because so much of our conflicts come from our, our unwillingness to engage in perspective sharing with someone who we see as different. And so the reward in this experience is I am so deeply connected to humanity in a way that otherwise I know I would not have because I'm a black man, I'm 6'1", I'm 225 pounds, I can 
be an opposing figure to some people. I can be a threat to some people. And when people see me and they see my joy and they see my, uh, they see my grace, they see my love, they see my compassion, all of those identities melt away and we just become two human beings having an interaction. And that to me is a reward I'm unwilling to give up. You know, there was one day at, at Peace for Kids and I think we were coming from the park and you were on your own with a wagon and you were watching other people also bringing stuff back from the park and you stopped for a moment and you said, wow, I, I can't believe I'm not doing this alone still. I can't believe this. all these other people are here doing it with me. And, you know, that's because of oh. you. You know, Zaid. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I, and but I really got in that moment that you've been plugging away for years, for, for years, right? And at the beginning, it was probably super, super lean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It. Um, um, hmm. Having a moment here. Um, it's a real humbling experience, you know, um, yeah. because I say all the time that I get to see the, the, the best size of the human condition. Um, and I think the thing that is most surprising to me is that I see the best in humanity through, through kids who are viewed as least in the human condition. Uh, and it is, I think it is the, the opposite of what you would expect to see, you know, um, is that the, the most human aspects of our condition I get to experience with, with kids who people believed are unloved, who don't have the capacity for love, um, who are, are broken and, you know, the fact that other people are willing to, to go to that place with our kids and um, the fact that our kids are willing to go there with us is so life affirming. You know, who our kids are just in the nature of their beingness is incredible. And I'm always taken aback by it. Um, and every week with our kids, somebody says something that makes me laugh, that makes me remember like, wow, you know, these kids are brilliant, you know, and they say things that challenge me. And um, it, it is it is unbelievable. And, you know, I've often said I get paid to do this job, but I do it for free. And, and I did it for free in the beginning. And. I can imagine that there's a day coming that I'll get back to doing it for free. Um, Peace for Kids is going to be in my blood um, as long as I have breath on this planet. And as long as there is a space where our kids feel safe, because to me, that's really how I define justice. You know, we're, we're always looking for equity and justice in the work that we do. And for me, justice is just about creating an environment where there is a sense of felt safety. When our kids feel safe, when we as adults feel safe, the best of who we are comes out. And the fact that so many other people would step in that space with me to create a safe environment for us all to heal and to grow and to love and to nurture each other 
is incredible to me. I don't take it for granted. Well, also what I see is that you celebrate the kids. You're giving them a safe place to be who they are, but you also celebrate mm-hmm. them. Like, I mean, I've seen it in their faces. You know, they're they're like, I'm me here. I'm me here. That's it. And that's, it's so cool. All right, I want to ask you one thing I ask all my guests, and I will ask you to dig a little deep for this. What is the one thing that no one would know about you unless you told them? Is there something like that about you that no one would know? Yeah. Um, As much as I love my black skin, I uh, struggled with the the color of my skin when I was younger. And I had a, a grandmother... Uh, God rest her soul. She she passed away. But I had a grandmother who had my my mom's mother who was paranoid schizophrenic, and she was not fond of people with 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 darker black skin because she was from New Orleans and she liked lighter skin folks. And um, I. As I got older, my skin complexion changed and it got darker and darker. And when I would go uh, and play at her house, because I had an uncle that was three years older who I was very close with, I would go outside and then I would come in the house and I would put my face in in, in the ice chest because I was hopeful that I, I it would it would make my skin not get darker. And so I, I really struggled with skin complexion, and it was something that was um, really hard for me in my childhood because, you know, colorism is 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 really real sometimes for Black folks in, 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 throughout this country. And uh, as much as my my parents had encouraged me to embrace my blackness, I, I had no idea what that what that meant when I was a kid. Um, and there weren't enough kind of examples when I was younger of people of, of color, um, you know, that's, this was before the Cosby show and things like that, where you could see all these other hues of blackness existing in TV and media. Um, I went to a school in which I was one of the few black kids and, um, you know, kids would touch my hair and like, wow, it's really soft. You know, like I had all these experiences and I just didn't have anybody to kind of talk to, to about that. So for me, um, it's something that that I continue to deal with today, not on my own blackness, but with my my children. Um, you know, mm. really wanting them to embrace the the beauty of who they are, regardless. Because I have kids on the spectrum. I have a son who is you know as dark as me, and I have you know a daughter who's really light, like like my wife. Um, and they have different hair textures. And so all those things that kind of lend themselves into um, our definition of blackness, I want my my kids to experience a spectrum of it so that they don't in- embrace any of the kind of self-hatred that I had to move through. Wow. Wow. Well, I, I want to I wanna really thank you, Zaid, for talking to me today. Thank you, Janie. It's good to have this moment with you. I feel like most of the time when we're together, there's there's a lot of us. So it's nice to to make this heart-to-heart connection in this time. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
Thank you, Zaid. Wow, what you do is amazing and empowering. Thank you for your compassion and constant effort to make things better for kids. You really are bringing strength to the community. So thank you. Our next guest is Megan Elizabeth Ward. She and her wife have fostered over 40 kids so far in only five years, and they're launching the Five Hive, which is a foster care community support system. Talk about making an effort. Tune in next week, and until then, thank you and be well. If you see something, say something. If you suspect a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. If you want to know more about becoming a CASA anywhere in the country, go to nationalcasagal.org. And in L.A., casala.org. And if you want to know more about becoming a foster parent, check out the National Foster Parent Association at nfponline.org. There's also faithfosterfamilies.org and adoptuskids.org. There's tons of other information online as well, so you can just hunt around. We also want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful original music. You can find her music on Spotify or Instagram at Christina Aposta. And also thank you to Yukon Har for his engineering. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear and you find it as valuable as we do, please rate us and hit subscribe. You can also make a donation at bonusbabies.org. See you next time.